Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal. I'm David. I'm Tyler. This is the show where we talk about the things that we've seen since the last time we did one of these. That's our thing now, right? That's that's your your tagline. Apparently, I'm not. Look, I could I we I, we could I could say it like that for another seven weeks and then change it up. You don't know what's going to happen. These BP Movie Journals are loosey and goosey. That's true. That's the way we do things here. Oh my gosh! Look at your jacket right here. Oh, it's, yeah, it's ripping. Oh, no. This is a, it's vintage. Oh, my gosh. I thought it was like a Hulk situation. It's vintage. Uh, oh, ugh. is that that's like a like a coffee, right? What, vintage? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the size of coffee. No, I've, <laughs> it's old, big coffee. Um, I've talked before about how my wife and I are obsessed with a Food Network show called Mystery Diners. Yes. <laughs> and um, he that's how the host... Charles Stiles taught. He's he has that kind of southern accent, like okay. slightly southern accent, but where he says things like uh, uh, he's got an ulterior motive. Oh yeah, like I'm gonna go. I got. I'm gonna go to the post office and send send a package. Yeah, I've heard. I've heard that yeah. before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, just not being very productive with this, <laughs> with, with his time. Uh, that, that's that's a very strange type of southern accent. Yeah. I'm not. I couldn't even really pinpoint specifically where that is. Listeners, help us out. So I will say that part of my wife and I's obsession with mystery diners is talking like that all the time now. Oh, sure. <laughs> sure. So, uh, yeah, if that's, if that slips in, you'll know where it's coming from. Indeed. Um, don't be alarmed, but let's talk about the stuff we've watched. All right. You go first. We'll do movies before TV. What would you watch? Some all good? right. Uh, yeah. By the way, I should tell you, I'm super laid back right now. Um, well, you're, you're freshly showered. Yeah. And, uh, and here's the deal. So I, it's summertime. So I crank the central air in my house and then I'll take a very hot shower. I will get out and sorry, everybody. I will then lay, uh, naked on my, uh, that's a weird thing to say, but like, I'll just lay on my bed and like, just be like super cold and it's really relaxing. Listeners, wow, give it a give it a try. Oh, it's great. Um, yeah, so you can tell I'm laid back because I literally just said, "Hey, I lay naked in a certain situation." Um, so yeah, uh, my friends and I watched um, a movie called Point Blank, uh, directed by John Borman, mm-hmm. who is one of those who's a director I'm becoming increasingly fascinated with. Uh, he did, did Excalibur, which you just saw. And he did he, the great he, deliverance, which I still have not seen. Which you, um, yeah, it, I had a, I had a little discussion with a friend of the show, Jason Eakin on uh, Twitter okay. about, um, people saying, Oh, you have to see this. That right. always bugs me. But my caveat is if it's someone who like specifically knows my tastes oh, sure. and says you should, see, I still won't say you have to see, yeah. but I'm going to tell you, Tyler, you mm-hmm. should see deliverance. I think you would like it quite a bit. I feel like you're judging me. No, because um, I love it too. No, I know <laughs> you or, or the likes of you should see deliverance. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so I saw point blank, um, which stars Lee Marvin and, 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 uh, others. And now this will actually lead into my rewatch, which I'll talk about in a moment, but basically, uh, it's based on a book called, I believe the hunter, which was turned into a film in 1999 called Payback. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, point blank. It's it's so it's based on that on that book, and it's sort of this. Uh, it's considered a, a very groundbreaking uh, action movie from the 1960s because uh, there's a, a vaguely I, this isn't the right word to say, but kind of psychedelic as far as how how the 
how John Borman explores like the effect that all this violence is having on the main character. Um, so it's really interesting. I didn't necessarily love it, um, but I liked it a lot. And there are some sequences that are just great. And also, and this isn't a thing I talk about enough, but I feel like I should. The sound design it's marvelous. Well, that's funny you mean because I've actually never seen the film. Okay. But I know it from Los Angeles Plays Itself, where oh, it has okay. him walking down a long hallway, and there's just the sound of the footsteps. That's the one. But I also think of um, the narrator of Los Angeles Plays Itself says that uh, people who hate Los Angeles love Point Blank. It's <laughs> <laughs> a weird thing to say. Yeah. Um, I mean, he goes on to back up the point. Sure. But, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and I guess maybe that's, uh, you know, I don't love point blank and I do enjoy living in Los Angeles, but, uh, but it's worth watching. I, 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 what's interesting is when you, if you watch it in the, in the context of like modern action or even like action from the seventies and eighties, like it doesn't quite fit. If you look at it, in the context of Bonnie and Clyde and the wild bunch, it's right there. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it, it fits very much into that style of, of action. And, uh, and it's very interesting. And then also this is, uh, you know, Lee Marvin, you know, the kind of actor he is. Um, and a lot of the other characters kind of have that, a certain monotone quality to it. And so by the, you know, even though the movie's only like 90 minutes, after about an hour, you start to get kind of lulled into, uh, you know, it's just like, Oh my gosh, like, can I get somebody, uh, with a more interesting cadence please? And then oddly enough, uh, Carol O'Connor shows up oh. in a key role and just injects life by just being different by being more, uh, heightened and that sort of thing. And he's really good in it. So it's, it's a movie that I recommend. And I, I think it's certainly from a film. I feel guilty saying this, but like from a film, from like a film history standpoint and a film appreciation standpoint, I think it's actually quite important, but, uh, but yeah, so that's point blank moving on. Okay. I saw a, uh, I guess a concert film. I was going to say documentary. It's not really a concert film, but on the 3rd of July, we haven't done one of these since the 4th of July. So happy birthday, America. Damn right. It was a good one. Yeah. Uh, but on the 3rd of July, my wife and I went uh, out to Santa Monica to the Arrow theater mm -hmm. to see a concert film known as, uh, Willie Nelson's 4th of July celebration. Okay. Which is a sticking point here. So it's, Willie Nelson has been, and I guess he still does these, these like festivals every 4th of July weekend, um, somewhere in Texas. And he's been doing them for over 30 years. Okay. Uh, I guess over 40, yeah, because this is from like 1979. So that's what, 36 years ago now? Um, I'm not good with math. <laughs> I think that's right. Uh, here's a bit of a sticking point. The concerts are called Willie Nelson's 4th of July Picnic. Okay. The title card that comes up on the movie, the on-screen title is William Nelson's 4th of July Picnic, but it was sell, it was sold on the marquee and all the literature and on IMDb as William Nelson's 4th of July Celebration. I don't mm. know how a thing like that happens. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I don't like it. Um, Picnic sounds so much more inviting, I think. Yeah, and but th this uh was a delight. It wasn't in great shape. It was very not that it was like um scratched or or you know popping or anything but it was very pink you know the way that mm -hmm. uh that um i guess like uh eastman kodak yeah, yeah. films tend to turn pink okay so uh, but i got used to it after a while um and it was also 
Uh, it's okay. So it's just a concert. It's it's Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings are the main okay. people that you would know, and then there's a lot of others. Uh, in and we'll get to the last one, uh, the the best one uh, okay. at the end. But uh, full of just it's just delightful performances. Other than yeah. the beginning of like the crowd, it's just. I mean, you see a lot of shots of the crowd, but it's just song after song. Right. Sometimes they talk and sometimes they sing, but it's pretty much just uh, you're watching a whole weekend's worth of performances in a hundred minutes or so. A um, couple things stick out. There's a weird vibe. It's supposed to be this like, you know, this fun picnic, right? Okay. But there's also clearly the cameramen were directed to any time you see a topless woman in the crowd, make sure you <laughs> zoom in on that. Top. So of course, like, of course it's, you know, you think of Willie Nelson is this old, like, you know, he's just sweet old man now. Yeah. But like, this is outlaw country and it's just, they really wanted to sell. Like this is an R rated concert film, hmm. um, which they don't like cuss at all in it. Yeah. It's just R rated because they literally, you, you don't get through a single performance without seeing at least two naked women oh, wow. or, or topless women at least. Um, and the better at one point there's a woman who's like on someone's shoulders and a bunch of like drunk creepers start reaping, reaching up and like gro- groping her. Uh, right. <laughs> really uh, weird. Right. That's, um, yeah, you you mentioned vibe. It's like that's not a great vibe. Yeah. <laughs> I don't and, think Willie would be happy about that. And here's what adds to the vibe. Here's what we'll get to. Here's the best part. Okay. Do you know the music of a man named Leon Russell? No, I know Leon Redbone. Uh, this is different. Uh, I was not familiar with Leon Russell. He is the star of this film <laughs> because he is from the from the get go. Mm-hmm just plastered. Oh, okay. And plastered in a way that he clearly just wanted to be on stage for everyone's performance. So sometimes he's joining in performances where he's not asked to, where he'll just like join in with a Willie Nelson song that he likes. And he'll just like talk the lyrics as a backup or whatever, or, or like Ugh. lead Willie Nelson in the lyrics, but everyone's having fun. But then sometimes he's so drunk that he's literally just standing or sitting and staring at the person <laughs> <laughs> like shots of people performing or whatever. Like the person slept with his wife. Or yeah, something. Yeah. And then like you get to a shot from a certain angle and there's Leon Russell just like <laughs> staring. Uh, he was the discovery for me. And like coincidentally, I missed this because we were at Comic-Con, but um, the um, Cine family presented a screening at the Ace Hotel of uh, a very rare decades-old uh, documentary by Les Blank called The Poem is a Naked Person, which is a documentary about Leon Russell. Hmm. If, it, if it weren't for Comic-Con, I would have had a Leon Russell-filled week wow. because I would have definitely would have gone to see this because now well, and that's the thing is Leon Russell. You stupidly missed out on the Leon Russell panel at Comic-Con <laughs> yeah. at the Horton Grand Theater. Or Grand Horton, I don't remember uh, how. No, I think you had it right the first okay. time. Um, anyway, that was uh, Willie Nelson's 4th of July celebration. It was a blast. That sounds, is, that, is that like available? Can somebody I don't know. find I, that? I, I haven't seen it anymore. I feel like it probably wouldn't be. Yeah. Criterion should take that up. That would be great. It needs a lot of work. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then we went to Father's Office afterwards, which is a bar and restaurant. Which is it nice? Uh, you would hate it. Okay. And I'll tell you why. All right. You like burgers, right? Uh, I'm not opposed to them. You like burgers. I know you do. Yeah. But this is a place that serves a fancy burger. Oh. Uh, no substitutions. Of course not. Yeah. <laughs> so my little uh, ketchup and mustard horse shit is not going to fly there. No, because this is like, you're going to get blue cheese and you're going to get like arugula uh, instead of, you know, regular lettuce. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, yeah. It's delicious. It's when it's 
it's one of the best burgers in Los Angeles. And I feel like it's like trendy to say that. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like, do you know, like if someone asks you, who's your favorite character in adventure time? Right. Okay. Cause you and I, we are who we are. There's no way we're going to say Finn or Jake because we want to pick so like, right. What are the kind of people who want to like, like I want to, I want to surprise someone with my favorite. Well, let's, let's go. So this is what I'm saying. I hesitate to say father's office is one of the best burgers in Los Angeles because everyone says that. Oh, okay. But it really is. Okay. Anyway, fair enough. What was your adventure time point you're going to make? Well, I was going to say like, uh, because I don't know adventure time very well, I'd say something like Deadwood. Like you almost want to say like, well, you, you, because it's just assumed that it's Al, uh, swear engine. It's like, okay, look, we all know that he's our favorite. Okay. So now that we'll just take, it's a common denominator, which means you can just push it to the side. Right. And now let's, let's actually talk. You know, it's, it's, so who do you usually go? I, I tend to change up a lot. Uh, it's tough. I like doc, uh, doc Cochran a lot. Um, I don't know. It, it does. It does change. Um, my, my two go-tos are Joni. Yeah. And the Reverend from who's only in season, season one. I do. Li- yeah. He's fantastic. Well, Ray McKinnon's amazing, yeah. but yeah. Um, okay. So we should All move right. on. Sorry. Yeah. Um, next for me is of course, payback, which I watched, uh, the next day because I was curious. I, I, I was already very familiar with the movie, but, um, I haven't seen it in a long time. Yeah. When's the last time you saw it? Maybe I may, I might've watched it on like, one of us had a VHS when we were in college. Uh, yeah, I did. I might have watched that. Okay, that's probably the last time. Yeah, I've seen I've seen probably three or four times, uh, and in many ways it holds up. Uh, I do appreciate its willingness to just be very violent, um, but it also now that I'm older and I and I'm able to you're able to look at, well, I'm older and also 1999 was 16 years ago. And I, I've got a little bit more perspective on it and, and we have more perspective on the nineties in general. And you realize that payback owes a lot to Pulp Fiction as far as its tone. And then like so many other, uh, movies like thrillers and action movies of the late nineties, early two thousand, it's got that blue filter. I mean, this that's, the film is very desaturated. Uh, no, actually is that, that look, which is, which it's not bad, but after a while it's just like, okay, well now it's, it feels forced after a while, but did you, I've never seen the director's cut. I've not. I looked it up. I looked up like what the differences were and it sounds, I don't know. I've, I've, feel like it'd be a lateral move based on yeah. just i think but it's I, an interesting story because yeah, essentially yeah. mel gibson who's the store who's the star was also a producer mm-hmm. and he essentially took the movie away and i don't know if he reshot stuff himself but he definitely recut uh the ending essentially himself he took it away from uh who's the director brian, brian Hogland. Hogland. yeah um well and just like and obviously i don't necessarily like to hear about that kind of thing but what i will say is that i feel like as a performer I think he got this material really well. I, you know, it is a shame the, you know, the way his career went, obviously completely his fault, but you forget how dynamic a performer he was and how insanely watchable he was on screen. Like when he, especially if his character had to be kind of funny, like I, to this day, you could probably say at any given point, Hey, let's watch Maverick. And I'll be like, let's do it. Absolutely. I'll be very excited to do it. Um, and with this, like, I feel like he, he, he has a lot of charisma. I feel like he's somebody who, again, 
you know, taking something away from a director is not a thing I like, but I do think it's from somebody. He's not merely a producer. He is also, he also has a creative investment in this material. Um, so, but I'd be interested in watching the, the, the director's cut. One of the things that sticks with me from that movie that if I were a less moral person, I would try is that he, uh, picks the pocket of someone who looks like him mm-hmm. and uses his ID and card to like get a haircut and a suit and yeah. a steak. And yeah. then as soon as it runs out, he's like confidently like, no, run it again. And, yeah. and then like, leaves, leaves the restaurant. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I would, yeah. I, I would never get away with that or try to, because that would be wrong. Well, and the, f- but it <laughs> yes, is very, it I don't know, escapist. Well, and the film also, um, you know, the, the big campaign was get ready f- to root for the bad guy. It's like, that's all well and good, but he's, he's up against worse guys. Right. But in that moment, yeah. well now he's screwing over a restaurant and that waiter's obviously not well, getting a tip. And that guy. Yeah. Well, that, there's that as well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a movie that I, that I enjoy. Um, I think I enjoy it less now just because I think I'm a, honestly a more mature Right. film watcher um but i still i still like aspects of it it's a film that introduced for me it's the film that introduced me to actor greg henry who i like a lot right and has a lot of fun in the movie and so but then he was in slither and it like obliterated any other memory <laughs> yeah it's the only <laughs> kind of coke ne- i like yeah <laughs> greg henry never like i'm glad that when he works but he never needs to be for me yeah he never needs to do another movie because he's so great in slither <laughs> Yeah, it's you know I can't I can't argue with you, um, but yeah. So uh, payback. So watching Point Blank and then Payback, just two very different versions of the same story. And there are scene, there are definite scenes that it's like okay, well, and certainly different tone. And then also the story itself, like both movies take a great deal of Liberty with the original story. Cause I looked that up as well. Okay. Um, but there are certain scenes that like Brian Helgeland and John Borman, both of them are like that scene is about as perfect as it gets already. We're not changing that. Can I tell you what bothers me about payback? What's that? Again, this is all my memory. Cause it's been over 10 years. Okay. Excuse me. Um, I don't like movies. It was like, you are clearly Chicago. Why don't you just say you're Chicago? Payback is Chicago, but it never says it. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay. It's not. Yeah, it is. Maybe they feel like they don't have to. I feel like it just bothers me a little bit. I, cause I, this is just a personal thing with me. I like when movies are invested in their sense of place, you know? Well, one can make the argument that it is invested in the sense of place. Sorry. But you don't have characters constantly saying like, well, you know, uh, here in Chicago, you know, we do things a little differently. That's no, a New I York. Guess, what I mean is that it, it, I feel like even when they're shooting on location and payback, and again, mm-hmm. this is from a memory that's over 10 years old. Okay. I keep saying, I feel like it's Chicago, but it's sort of scrubbed of everything, but the basic architecture and infrastructure of Chicago. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it doesn't have, it's not peopled with Chicagoans, I guess is what I mean. Uh, that's true. If anything, the streets are often quite empty except yeah, when he needs, and except when they need to be full so he can pick somebody's right, pocket. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. When I think of movies like, um, we talked about this years ago with Mike Siegel. Um, when I think of movies that take place, like if someone said like, Hey, what are movies that take place in Chicago? I will list blues brothers, fugitive and untouchables and various others. And the portrait of a serial killer. Obviously. Um, that's honestly one of the first ones in that's addition odd. to being, I mean, it's an, it's a movie that definitely leaves its mark on your memory, mm-hmm. but it also feels like a Chicago movie to me, you know, like it, it, I, and you know what? It's, it's been so long since I've seen it that I actually don't think of it as a Chicago uh-huh. film. 
but and you said the fugitive yeah that one yeah. uh because like there's stuff that take like they utilize the location and and but i feel like they're never just saying like hey chicago but it's it's also little things like the way they the way the federal marshals talk about the chicago police yeah. and that like they do things a very specific way and they could be talking about new york police they could be talking about detroit police like it could work for other cities but the viewer and and culture in general has an idea of what chicago is right. and if you don't and if the chicago police are specifically <laughs> angry at you that's bad news yeah so i i feel like that one actually is a, a um, good example i'm gonna name two chicago movies one of okay. them i actually i don't think it's a very good movie overall but i weirdly do think it's a really good chicago movie and that's child's play <laughs> because that really does feel like i like i don't chicago. think i've ever actually seen it um oh and another one Oh, okay. Horror, this is a horror trilogy of Chicago movies. Child's Play, Stir of Echoes is a great yeah, South that, Side that movie. That was a good one, yeah. And Candyman, which is a Cabrini Green movie. Which I have also not seen. And uh, is that, Have you never seen Candyman? I have not. And actually, I believe, um, didn't the AV Club just do something about Candyman and Cabrini Green? Like, just like today? Like in the last four days. I think they just posted something about it. Maybe That's it odd. someone else. I, don't I feel know. like I read AV Club all the time. Maybe it slipped through my. Yeah, I might be thinking someone else too. But, but like, um, uh, I would like, love to read that because, yeah, uh, yeah. Cabrini Green is not what it was. It, w- it wasn't right. even what it was when we lived there yeah. t- entirely. But uh, like, but it was still for like for people who don't know who are listening. Cabrini Green was a. Uh, I guess what I don't think it exists anymore as a housing project. Right. No, I think they. But it was a notoriously uh, dangerous yeah. housing project. Um, in and. Uh, a lot of Candyman is about the weird fact that it's a housing project that is surrounded by areas of town that aren't where you think of housing projects. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, cause it's north side, like near, uh, like off the freeway, mm-hmm. like, uh, and Candyman has to do with the idea that it was, uh, built as luxury high rises and, uh, turned into a housing project and it has this weird history. Um, it's such a candy man. is such a fantastic movie. I never well, saw farewell to the flesh though. The, the sequel. Okay. Is Virginia Madsen in Candyman? Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. It's, it's and, I've um, seen Sandra Berkeley. Oh, okay. And then Tony Todd is, yeah, Tony Todd yeah. is the candy man. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've seen, you know, clips of it just often in like, you know, documentaries about horror and that kind of thing, but I've never actually seen, it. I've heard it's actually quite terrifying. It's fantastic. Directed by Bernard Rose. With uh, scored by Philip Glass. Oh, that's so. Oh, you know what? Oh my gosh, Philip Glass doing a horror movie. Yeah. I'm so much more interested now. Um, but yeah, so anyway, that was payback. Sorry, I feel like we we kind of deviated a lot, but that's okay. Um, I, I will talk Candyman anytime. It's one of my. It might be one of. My, I should re revisit my top ten of all time. I don't know. If that's exactly oh, wow. that. But uh, Candyman might be a top fifty of all time. Movie Interesting. Movie. I love it so much because. Well, I think. I guess I got to prioritize this thing. I think part of what it is, and I've talked about this before with movies is that I, a a movie jumps up a lot of like a a grade or two or a lot Mm. of percentage points if it surprises me. And so I think there's something like, Oh, you've got like a, what, what year is Candyman? Um, 92. You've got an early nineties, essentially a slasher film based on an urban legend. It seems like it could be, you know, the uh, second generation, uh, uh, welcome to the Elm, you know, nightmare on Elm street, sure, welcome to sure. nightmare on Elm street ripoff. Uh, and it ends up being this like terrifying art movie. Hmm. 
um, with really serious performances and uh, a really, really fantastic sense of tone and pacing. And it's just super creepy. Uh, and I love it. Mm. Uh, all right. Moving on. Interesting. My next movie. All right. Is a movie that I saw that I was really excited for. This is the opposite of something that surprises me. Okay. This is, you know, when a, a director you like makes a movie and you're super excited sure. and it ends up not being very good, it hurts more than if it was, if you hadn't heard of this director. Oh, sure. So the director Christian Petzold made a film, I think three years ago called Barbara. Okay. Um, I don't know if you heard of this. I don't think so. It's uh, about a woman named Barbara. Mm-hmm. who is, so takes far. place in the East Germany in the 1980s. And this woman is a doctor. She applied for an exit visa to go live with her uh, boyfriend. And the authorities and the secret police didn't like that. Okay. Like, she's a doctor. She's important. So to punish her, they sort of relocate her to this small country hospital where they can keep an eye on her. So it's her working in this hospital, trying to find a way out and being monitored by the secret police and also kind of developing a relationship with another doctor, even though she has a, mm-hmm. you know, she's resisting the fact that she has feelings for this guy. Cause she has a boyfriend out of country and everything. And she wants to view her situation as temporary cause she's trying to get out. And so it's this great political movie, period piece, yeah. thriller, suspense movie. It's a fantastic movie. I will never get tired of watching movies about how horrendous uh, Soviet Russia was. <laughs> well, again, this is Germany. Oh, sorry. Yes, yes. I'm sorry. Uh, but it still is. It's yeah, still that. The, yeah. Soviet, yeah. In the Stasi. Um, so Christian Petzold has a new movie. Uh, it comes out uh, next week. I'll have a full review on the website uh, called Phoenix. I was very excited for that. Um, this is an early. This is a post-World War Two mm-hmm. film. And um, the premise, the first act is amazing. Mm-hmm. And I was like, all right, Christian Petzold at it again. Same lead. <laughs> Nina Haas, who played Barbara plays, uh, the woman in this movie whose name, I think Nellie is her name. She, um, is a woman who was, uh, like, I guess she was, had some Jewish heritage and ended up in a concentration camp and was a survivor. Mm-hmm. And her, um, when the, this all happens off screen. When we meet her, she's being driven back into the country by her friend after the camp's been liberated. Mm-hmm. And she, has, her face is covered in bandages because we find out that when the camp was liberated, the Nazis tried to kill everyone in there. They okay. shot her in the face uh, and left her for dead. Thought okay. she was dead. She survived. Okay. Um, so she has some plastic surgery in her face and um, comes back and tries to get back into her old life partially while her friend is like, let's just, you know, this place was awful to us. Let's just, they're setting up things for us in Israel. Let's Mm -hmm. pack our stuff up and move on. And she wants to look for her ex-husband, even though, um, there is a lot of suspicion that her ex-husband is the one who, to save his own ass, okay, sold her out and sent and sent her to the Nazis. Well, he's an ex-husband, obviously. Like, that's yeah. How well, I guess no. I guess I should say they are. They were never divorced. I guess they are still married. Okay. I think, of but it, separated, basically, right? Well, by the war. Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> but, fair okay. enough. Um, but yeah, they. So, but she's still in love with him. She wants to go find him. She doesn't believe he did this. So that's the whole first act, and it's fantastic. Then she finds him. Okay. And here's where the movie gets started to irk me. Which this is something that works allegorically, I think. Okay. But these are actual. This is an actual like story we're watching unfold, and it's not a true story. But it's like an like. Right. It's hard to buy. It's hard to buy. It's hard to swallow some things. So essentially, she finds her husband because of the 
reconstructive surgery that she's had, he doesn't recognize her, but tells her, you look like my ex-wife. Oh, okay. And so she decides, this is like, she decides to go along with it. And basically he being a scumbag has this scam. My ex-wife had some money. She died in these camps. You pretend to be her and we're going to get this money. and I'll give you some of it. Okay. But like, she's like essentially eventually like living with this guy. Eventually he would catch on. Right. And I think allegorically the idea is that he's intentionally keeping that part of his past at bay and that he's refusing to recognize her. But that doesn't come across in the movie. So I really like the move like I really wanted to like the movie. I like it's uh, pacing. I like the cinematography and the editing and, and Nina Haas is great once again, mm. but it just the moment that like it turned on a certain moment yeah. when a, he didn't recognize her and B, she didn't go, Hey, it's me, Nelly. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. From that point on, I was like just giving the movie the side eye and it never, it never recovered. Yeah. That's, that's the thing that, that bothers me. This this goes to like one of the things that I didn't like about Enemy, which is, you know, when you create characters, and even if there's like something a little bit outlandish, like you know, this person has a whole new face to the point that they're kind of unrecognizable and that sort of thing. Um, I don't know. It's but if if you're grounding the characters in in some kind of reality, and then you're going to tell me that they won't react the way anybody would right. to a certain situations, like you start to lose me. Yeah. And even if you're even it's like no no no, but we're, we're, they're allegory now. It's like oh, okay, so you're now just sacrificing these characters that you created and made me care about because you have something big to do. Right. And there's there's a way that it can be done. Sure. That you can have characters behaving unnaturally, but it has to be a part of. A whole. Absolutely. Know? Yeah, yeah. Like, and this was not that. Uh, I was thinking of, like, you know, uh, David Lynch, that his characters will often act in a way that doesn't necessarily fit, but they're in a world that doesn't fit. <laughs> they're in a David Lynch. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if anything, it's the height of common sense, the way these people react. Yeah. So, yeah, um, the, the, my summation of that is go find the movie Barbara from 2012. Yeah. Watch sounds, it that sounds fantastic. great. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, right before I left for Comic-Con, um, I was hanging out with friend of the show, Jason Eakin, and we went and saw Paul Feig's spy. Oh, I can't wait. With Melissa McCarthy. Holy shit, David, you will love it because I love it. We have a similar sense of humor. Um, I, I didn't have a lot of hope for this movie. I didn't see the heat. Well, I think the heat is so funny. Okay. Almost funny enough to paper over the fact that it's not a very good cop movie. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> but it's very, very yeah, funny. This is a good spy movie. Okay. Like, really good action. And I, I've i said it before. Okay, so I'll say this. I, I'll say all of this before I get to the actual humor. I'm fascinated by Melissa McCarthy's career. So she, okay, it's, I feel shitty saying this. But it's obvious. Like, she's a larger woman. Uh-huh. Hold on. Slow your roll. I know. I'm, yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> she's, a, she's a larger woman. But I feel like she has a certain sensibility. She's a lot more John Candy than Chris Farley. John Candy, his characters did not get their humor from him being a big guy. Right. He simply was a big guy and found humor within those characters. Chris Farley, a lot of his humor came from look how big I am and now I'm falling down. Um, And she very much is more from the John Candy thing, which is like 
this character doesn't need certainly doesn't need to be played by a bigger person. That's not required. She just it becomes a thing that it becomes just a fact of who she is. And then they move on from there. But I think she also is self-aware enough as a comedic performer to know how this is going to look. If, if I, a, a short, pretty round woman is beating the hell out of this, you know, very athletic super spy. Um, it's, it's inherently, uh, strange and that's a little bit funny. Uh, but we're not going to rely too much on that one thing to get the humor. So, and I also, I feel like the movie is for reason for things that I won't even go into broad, broad as possible strokes. The identities that they give her are hilarious. Mm-hmm. And those sequences, which they keep coming back to, um, and her reaction to them, to me, everything about that seems very uh, analogous to what it must like for to what, what it must be like for her as an actress. Oh, I like when that. someone this is, is saying, "This is how we see you. This is the role you're going to play," and it doesn't matter how capable you've shown yourself to be. This is who you'll always be. Um, and so, I think that's really interesting. The humor is amazing. I, I laughed a lot. Um, Rose Byrne, who I've, who I'm only slightly, I didn't see neighbors. I did see bridesmaids. She's great. Like she, she and Melissa McCarthy have such a wonderful chemistry, but the characters are, are enemies, but they happen to be together a good portion of the film. And just the way they go back and forth is just, just hilarious. And it's one of those things that like, you know, you and I've talked about, a lot of like movies that have a lot of improvised humor and that when you get, we'll get to one in a little bit. Okay. Oh, indeed. When you get to, um, you know, when you get people who, uh, first off, when you have a solid framework of a film, when you have characters that are very specific and actors who understand them, you know, improv works. I think improv works best when there is at least a basic structure and then you can deviate from that. Um, and I think that's why it works here is because the nature of the story is such that it needs to be very specific. It needs to be structured. And these characters have very clear goals. And so within that, that gives them room to work and it's still, and it doesn't feel like they're just, you know, just kind of, you know, jerking around or anything like that. Like, and so Melissa McCarthy and, and, and uh, Rose Byrne uh, really f- find the hu- like really explore and mine as much humor as they can out of this. And then, of course, a lot of people have said this. Jason Statham is also hilarious as sending up his own image. Um, it's I cannot recommend it highly enough. It is a very funny movie and a very, very good action movie as well. Oh, cool. I like that. And it's something, uh, I think I said this too when we were talking at Comic-Con, it's a movie that I think owes a great deal to the movie, uh, to the show Archer. Uh, so if you like, true. if you like Archer, I think that you'll, you'll enjoy this. Uh, cause I do like Archer. Um, okay. Fun's over. Okay. <laughs> cause I saw a great movie, but not a fun movie. Okay. You saw a couple years ago, the act of killing. Oh I, yeah. Yeah. All right. I saw the look of silence, yeah. which is the companion piece. Um, and it's uh, just as upsetting and disturbing, but in a much different way. Okay. Um, I imagine a lot of our listeners saw The Act of Killing, but if you didn't, it is a movie that uh, examines the legacy of a 
honest to god genocide that happened in indonesia 50 years ago where yeah. over a million people were killed um i believe that film was i think it was in both of our our tops 10 right probably okay um and um so i shouldn't be laughing during this but i like that i say that i I say Um, that every time it's it's now literally how i say it it's not even a joke anymore um but uh that film um the 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 character is a documentary but the 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 subjects i guess were perpetrators of the genocide they were uh gangsters who uh, essentially worked with the full endorsement and aid of the military government Mm -hmm. to kill just i mean each one of them must have killed uh, over a thousand people just they're almost like military contractors who were just brutal criminals right and then but uh and the the thing that about it is these aren't interviews of people who are in jail or something because the the victors from this are still in power so these people are like national heroes uh and a lot of them is just a lot of it is just them they do a lot of bragging about Mm -hmm. killing people right so the look of silence um limits its scope to uh one village in its surrounding area and uh also to basically the the main character in this in this case isn't one of the killers it's the brother of someone who was killed okay um and this person was he's 44 years old he was born uh i think the implication maybe is that his parents sort of had another kid later in life as a sort of mm. replacement i mean not, not to be cold about it but yeah they, uh, it was a couple of years after their son was killed in this genocide and they had him and so he never knew his brother who was killed and so um he goes around and uh interviews people who he i mean he knows exactly which two people killed his brother because his yeah. brother was known in town and they openly admit to whom they killed so yeah. he knows which they but he talks to a lot of the people who were involved in the killings and uh in the village um and it's uh, uh i guess the thing about the act of killing is that it's about a very somber and disturbing subject matter but the people are there's a like what's disturbing about it is that the people aren't behaving like it's somber right right yeah this is kind of the opposite uh because well, sure, yeah. this is about a guy who feels uh i guess the way i described it in my review that's on the site now is if the act of killing is a look at a nation's identity living with this being a part of its somewhat recent past. Mm-hmm. This is a movie about the other identity, the identity that was mostly erased and destroyed by sure. this genocide. Um, and, and that legacy, which is much more internalized because everyone expects everyone to just get along now. You know, yeah. this, this guy and his parents who are very old now, um, uh, like a hundred years old now, hmm. um, they live, they know who killed their son and they live in the same village and they see them. Yeah. Uh, and it's just a part of daily life now. Uh, but most of it is just this guy, this guy going from person to person and like talking. And then they, but there's also shots of him seeing the interviews that Joshua Oppenheimer, the director did. Right. So he's watching these people describe killing his, his yeah. brother and then interviewing them about it. So, Do you feel now that like almost in the same way as like the uh, paradise lost movies that now you can't think of the first one without think of thinking of this as well that they are now like they're now like one movie yeah and i think um like two sides of the same coin so, so I, to speak I, I, it's weird i generally don't read too much of like the director's notes or when they give you press <laughs> notes but um 
according to Joshua Oppenheimer, and this might be like Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse saying they had it planned all along. Sure. But according to Joshua Oppenheimer, this is how he always, how, how he intended when he started, when he was researching the story. Yeah. He realized that it wasn't all going to be one movie. This is how, sure. he, how he intended to split a movie into two movies and in this order. So yeah. I don't think you're supposed to not think of the act of killing when you see this. Now, it's essentially a sequel. It's more of a companion film because it's uh, right. It's of equal stature, yeah. but the two, uh, and I think this one probably, I would, I mean, I'm hesitant to go back and watch the act of killing because it's so sure. disturbing, but I imagine I might even get even more out of it now having seen the look of silence. Well, and let me ask you this in describing this film, which of course sounds great. I mean, not fun, uh, but that's fine. Um, it sounds one of the one of the reasons that I think active killing was so effective was because it was often so funny and you had the 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 conceit of these guys making their own movie about right, their exploits. Yeah. So there is there is almost I don't like to use the word. I won't say gimmick. There's a hook to it. Right. Yeah. This one seems like a much more straightforward and much more conventional documentary of yeah. here's the here's yeah. the the history of, of it, victimization and that sort of it thing. It does have the one weird thing. It's not as weird as the making the own movie, but I'm sure like any still you've seen of Look of Silence has the guy wearing the weird glasses yes. with the dials on them. So this guy, uh Adi or Adi, the guy who is doing the interview and the guy whose brother was killed, he's uh like a I guess an optometrist, but he's like a home optometrist, so he's okay. In some of these cases, he's going to fit people, like get people's prescriptions. That's, this is like his home kit that he puts on to test mm-hmm. their prescriptions. So he's talking to like the one guy you always see in like the poster and everything. Yeah. It's like that's one of the two guys who he knows directly were involved in killing his oh brother. My. But he's also fitting him for glasses at the same time. He's doing his job. So he's interviewing the guy while he has those weird things on. I guess that's the hook. Yeah. This could be a real Sweeney Todd situation where like he just he's like, how are those glasses working out? And then he pushes a button and blades go shooting into the guy's eyes. Right, that'd be yeah. pretty kick ass. Uh, that'd be great. Um, I remember uh, speaking of the act of killing. And I don't know if these people didn't know what it was or what, but I saw it at the L.A. Film Fest two years ago. And there were people like I looked around the theater before we started there people like munching on popcorn. Sitting there for act of killing. Like, <laughs> I have to imagine they didn't know what they were you know what though? I'll say this. Doesn't that just complete the absurdity of the whole thing? <laughs> like, way, it seems yeah. it's, yeah. it would seem wrong if someone wasn't uh, eating popcorn. Um, What's next for you? Next for me is I'm, I do not know how you say this last name. I feel terrible about it. Rick, uh, uh, Famuya, uh, I don't know. I apologize. F A M U Y I W A. I feel terrible. I don't know. Awa. Yeah. For me, Iwa. Yeah. See, it feels like it should be Awa, but it's not. There's not, there's only one A. Well, there's one at the very beginning of the, of the name, but anyway, uh, I feel it's F A. It's F A M. U. Say it again. Okay. Say it again. No. Okay. Say, say the letters in the order. F A M. U Y I W A. Wow. Yeah. Fa- yeah. I recognize it's not this guy's fault, but I'm angry at him. <laughs> um, I'm angry at myself. So, uh, okay. What's so the I name s- of the movie? Dope. Okay. Um, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> 
I saw Dope on a Whim. I had heard that it was uh, pretty good. Um, it was either that or Terminator Genesis. I think I made the right choice. Um, I haven't seen either one, but uh, that does seem to be the consensus. If, if I had to guess. Um, yeah. uh, and I didn't really know much about it. I heard that it had done well at Sundance and, and all that. And there's a lot of good in the movie. It's, it is a, it is an enjoyable movie by and large. It is. And, and it owes so much to like movies from the 1980s. And I'd say even early nineties where you have these nerdy kids in, um, in, uh, you know, South central Los Angeles, you know, they live in a very dangerous neighborhood and stuff, but they don't want to give into that. They are, nerds who get good grades they want to just you know keep their nose clean and all that and um but then as tends to happen in movies like this again it seems very 1980s like they find themselves invited to this really cool party and then suddenly they have a whole lot of drugs that they need to get rid of and all that um and so they but they apply their nerd abilities to get rid of these to sell these drugs in the most efficient way possible and that sort of thing. So it's, it's kind of fun. Um, and I think it, it does, the film certainly does, um, try to be about more than just comedy. Like it, it it does explore like who these characters are and what it would be, what it must be like to live in this environment. Um, and still, still have affection for it, but try to get out of it as well. So, um, so there's a lot going on there and it's, and it's often very funny and the, and the kid, the acting is really good. Um, one of the actors, oddly enough, a guy who was in the, in, who's in the show, um, workaholics, which I've never seen. Have you seen it? No. Okay. Wait. Yes. I saw one episode. Okay. He's one of the leads and he's got like big poofy hair. Oh, and he's the one whose name I don't know. Oh, uh, so yeah. it's, it's Adam, uh, Okay, I don't know his name either. There's Adam Devine, Adam Devine. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. There's Anders Holm. Yeah. Who I know, he was on Mindy Project, he was in Top 5. Okay. And then there's the other guy. Whose name is Blake Anderson, by the way. Okay. And uh, I know this because I looked him up after I saw him at my local Target. And uh, this guy is the lead of a comedy central, a very a successful comedy central show. What is he doing shopping at the, my, the Target in North Hills? Um, but anyway... <laughs> um, so, uh, but yeah, there's things I, I like about it, but there is one thing, and I don't think this is necessarily a spoiler, um, but it is something that bothered me and maybe it's wrong that it bothered me, but, uh, there's a little, you know, it's, this directed by a, a, written and directed by a black filmmaker and it's, and it, you know, features a, a black lead. Um, and most of the characters are black. And so it's like, it's a big part. That's a big part of it. And that's fine. That's a, as it should be. So he's. You know, um, as as will often happen in stuff like this, uh, I'm reminded of like Orange County, you know, he he's applying to Harvard. And so he has to write like a personal statement and that yeah. sort of thing. So or the spectacular now. Uh, I didn't see it. So. Application movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so uh, and of course, the film ends with voiceover in which, you know, he's he's learning. He's he's putting down what he has learned from this experience and without getting not going to a lot, a lot of detail because it's a criminal enterprise. Um, but, uh, and it actually starts out uh, pretty well where he talks about like, uh, like I'm going to s- describe two kids to you. The first lives in a suburb of Los Angeles and gets really good grades and all that. The second never knew his father and all that and lives in a, in a very poor neighborhood. And then of course he says they're the same person and it's me. Um, okay. So that's all well and good, but then it ends with this thing and it's meant to be like a real drop the mic kind of moment or a button, putting a button on it. Yeah. 
and uh, in which it said, in which he says, uh, he's like, so why do I want to go to Harvard? If I was, it's like, if I was white, would you even ask me that? I said, hey, fucker. I didn't ask you that. You asked yourself, you asked yourself that on my, don't make me like, I'm not a racist here. Also, by the way, no one asks that question with any kind of incredulity. Why do you want to go to Harvard? Right. Like that's a surprise. Oh, what you, a human being living in the, in the United States wants to go to the, one of the best colleges uh, in the history of man. Why, why would you ever want to do that? Certainly, with your fucking imagine. I can't even fucking imagine, as Jimmy Pardo <laughs> quoting Al Pacino would say. Um, and so it's that thing. Technically, I think it's Jimmy Pardo quoting Matt Belknap. Quoting that's Al that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like you know, and I feel bad. That's that's the thing. Is like I'm perfectly fine with with some of the you know the explorations like what it is of like what it is to be a, you know a black kid living in a ba- ba- bad neighborhood and like finding humor in it finding drama that's fine it's it's an, it's an experience i certainly don't have but when you do that and it's just like that a it's forced and b you're tr- you're now trying to it's like it's like at the last minute you know, like, like a Hail Mary play to like get be uh, be more significant and be more like hard hitting and it's just like, but so many things about it don't work. The idea of like, because the question is, why do you want to go to Harvard? Which no one would ever ask, except as a rhetorical device. Um, but also when it says, if, I, you know, playing this race thing, it's like, would you ask me that? It's like, yeah, but I didn't ask you that. Right. You know, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, uh, it's almost like he, in his essay, he's like, when did you stop beating your wife? <laughs> you know? And it's like, <laughs> well, I mean, I, oh, you got me. Um, so it's that kind of thing. And, and the fact that a movie basically, the movie basically ends on that, uh, kind of left a sour taste in my mouth, but by and large, it's a, it's a good movie, but that really bothered me. Okay. Um, speaking of movies that bother, bother you. Okay. Okay. This is a movie. I'm an auteurist, right? Yeah. I believe in the auteur theory. Yeah. And yet, and yet, here we go. I had my hopes way up for Judd Apatow's train wreck, even though, I have not been a fan of Judd Apatow of yeah. late. Okay. But I'm a huge fan of Amy Schumer. And sure. I was hoping this will be more an Amy Schumer movie, Amy Schumer movie than a Judd Apatow movie. Okay. Not the case. The auteur, auteur so you, theory proves true once again. <laughs> yeah. This is a Judd Apatow movie through and through. And I find that it, there's st- there's a ton of funny stuff in it. Sure. But it's over two hours long and it feels like it hits every beat that a Judd Apatow movie hmm. hits. Uh, I, I was except, yeah, I, except it as a female lead now. Right. But yeah, I, I guess she's the same kind of character, like the arrested adolescent character. Yeah. Except I guess the thing is she's not like, unlike, okay. If you look at Steve Carell and the four year old boy is essentially like a 40 year old virgin, the 40 year old virgin. Sorry that I always do that now. Yeah. The 40 year old virgin. Um, uh, he works at, he's like a stock boy at a, right at a retail store yeah yeah and um seth rogan and knocked up doesn't work at all he lives off of a settlement because a yeah he's got his foot run over by a po- yeah. by a postal truck is that something what like is? that yeah, yeah. Something like a mail truck um the difference here like amy schumer's character has a great job she writes yeah. for a men's magazine she like i feel like the movie is insisting that she's a train wreck like the movie like the title says but mm-hmm. it's like well she's uh, I mean, she, yeah, she cheats on her boyfriend, but she's probably close to bra- breaking up with him anyway. So that's not 
that's not train wreck level behavior. It's not it's cool not, of her. Yeah, it's but not it's not good. like her life's not a mess. She's like she lives on her own. She's got a healthy self image. She's got a great job. Why are you insisting that she's a train wreck just because she's single and uh, once she breaks up with a boyfriend, she's single and she isn't interested in marriage or marriage or kids. It seems like it's in for all of Judd Apatow, like twisting up the rom-com formula, which he doesn't mm-hmm. do, but he appears to sometimes it really has a kind of, uh, old fashioned morality to it, which I think is true. His, of his movies is always, yeah, yeah. Um, but I guess it's just tired at this point is what I'm saying. Yeah. And also he's just got to learn to tighten it the fuck up. It just, every, like every scene could be shorter. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I don't want to go on too long about it. Uh, but I will say, I mean, if, if you just want to see a comedy with enough good laughs and you don't mind that it's going to be over two hours, plus yeah. you're going to see previews, you know, trailers and stuff like that. It's a, it's an investment and he should fucking take that into consideration when he's making yeah. a comedy. Anyway, um, it does have a ton of laughs and the, the chemistry between Amy Schumer and Bill Hader is off the charts. It's okay. fantastic. The scenes that are just them, especially when they're having a good time when they're like getting to know each other and dating. Yeah. Uh, they're a delight. And a lot of the cast, I'm a huge Colin Quinn fan always. Yeah. So um, he's fantastic. Did you ever see the uh, the comedians in cars getting coffee with Colin Quinn and Mario Joyner? Yes, I did see that. Yeah. One. Yeah. Um, I heard that Downton Abbey's pretty. Oh, cool. I was um, thinking of that line yeah. earlier today and laughed out loud. Yeah. Um, and then also, like a lot of people have said, and they're right, LeBron James is really funny. <laughs> and just the con- like the concept of his character, because well, I guess one thing that I will say is that. Um, Trainwreck does gender flip a lot of what you come to expect from these types of movies. Mm-hmm. And so um, LeBron James is essentially playing the character that like Judy Greer has played in a, t- a ton of oh, sure. where she's like the sexless best friend yeah, yeah. there to like cheer on or give support to the, the, the main character. That's pretty funny. So that's essentially what LeBron he's playing James himself, is. He's right? Playing like, himself. Yeah, yeah. Bill Hader's character is like a, a hotshot sports doctor. Yeah. And so they've, they're friends. Um, and so, yeah, just the premise of his character is funny and he, That's great. and he sells it, uh, really well. Uh, and, uh, John Cena or John Cena, the, yeah. the wrestler is mm-hmm. also really funny. There's he's, he's the boyfriend she has at the beginning of the movie. Who's like, looks like that guy is yeah. a huge, muscly guy, but is like the sensitive guy who wants to go see art house movies. Okay. Um, and there actually is, I don't know if, it, I don't know if this is a spoiler or not. Uh, should I say, uh, go ahead. They go to an art house movie that he says this was a big hit at Sundance and it's called dog Walker and Daniel Radcliffe. You see clips in the movie. Daniel Radcliffe plays a New York dog Walker who starts up a, uh, a relationship with Marissa Tomei. <laughs> and he's like tortured about being a dog Walker. So I think it's like a really like, it's a pretty funny parody of, uh, crappy Sundance type movies. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of great jokes in it. Um, it just well, that's the thing is like i want judd apatow is always dependably funny yeah but it's just like like he's just really undisciplined i guess and that's a shitty thing to say but you know what i mean uh, yeah uh, i do i do very much know what you mean and i know these are different types of movies but they're all comedies in the age where we have edgar wright and Mm -hmm. we have phil lord and chris miller i think we've come to expect more from a film comedy I'm not okay with just two hours of funny jokes anymore. I want it to be 
uh, a work of cinema. Well, and I will say that and like Judd Apatow's movies are barely cinema. I guess that's what I'm saying. I think I think Judd Apatow would very easily point to Woody Allen and say that that is he's not a, as good a filmmaker as Woody Allen. Well, certainly, all. well, certainly not. But you but know, Woody Allen you, has scripts. I think that's. Uh, I know I'm the yeah. ten billionth person. There are more people than there are in the world. That's oh, how wow. many people have complained about improvisation in Judd Apatow's movies. Sure. But it's a serious problem. You can yeah. tell when it's happening. You can tell when it's like, oh, this scene's over, but we're just going to vamp for another. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I'm so annoyed with that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to, I was probably going to see it next week. Um, knowing what to expect. And what's interesting is you do seem to be in the minority on this one. Like people, um, and I mean, you're still saying it's funny. You're still saying like there are yeah. good things, certainly very good things about it. Um, but yeah, other people seem to, people have said like, Oh, it's a return to form and all that. It's like, well, well, see, I feel like I <laughs> maybe, to, it, maybe that's true. Uh, another conversation I had on Twitter with a friend of the show, Aaron Newworth was about, it's, it has a very high rotten tomato score, but mm-hmm. Aaron Newworth pointed out that it's one of those cases where, enough critics put it at just above average mm-hmm. you know that it ends up because the rotten tomato the tomato meter works on a it's like a zero sum game yeah so it's um i guess what Aaron was saying is that it looks like it's doing better critically than it actually is yeah um all right let's move on that's y- y- okay i was very excited because you mentioned edgar wright okay uh you cannot talk about Ant-Man without talking about Edgar Wright, because uh, especially if you're a film fan, because we all know that the, he was originally slated to direct right. it. And uh, boy, I wish he had. Really? Peyton Reed, uh, somebody who he directed Down With Love, which you and I enjoyed quite a bit. and Bring it on, which a lot of people like. Which I didn't see it, so I, I never saw Yes Man. Neither did I, but his, I wanted his other to. superhero movie. Yes, man. That's the one. Yeah. Um, the guy who beats things, <laughs> beats evil with the power of positivity. Yeah. Um, it's a joke I already made on Twitter. I'm oh, recycling my Twitter on my own Twitter it, feed. It, it happens. <laughs> um, so boy, I, you know, I wanted to like Ant-Man. I remember being, I, I remember being excited about it because it certainly seemed lower in scale or smaller in scale. You know what I mean? Like there's no intended. Oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> anyway um but like you know there's no galactic stuff you know it's just there's a corporate espionage kind of thing and this guy and and the film i've 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 been told later that like oh you know how um how uh the second captain america is kind of like a political espionage thriller it's like absolutely yes i know that it's like this is like a heist movie uh that's something that i was like only a day or two after when people said oh these are like on IMDb, it said, hey, Ant-Man's coming out. It's kind of like a heist movie. Here's some 10, 10 great heist movies. And I thought, I guess it is like a heist movie. The fact that that didn't occur to me probably is not great. Because oh. um, I can usually I like recognize that. Movie. I do, too, when it is one. Uh, but this one, it's it, like, I feel like it it embraces, it, it tries to do some of those, but then it just falls into basic action. The action is great. Okay. Like it, there's a real nice creativity to it because he can shrink and then get and then get big again. So like he can dodge bullets by basically becoming so small that like they don't know what they're shooting at. And then he, you know, uh, enlarges just in time to punch him in the face. There's a lot of fun there. And then also like when you're seeing it from his perspective, you know, the world is constantly shifting big, small, that sort of thing. So it's, it's really interesting. I like that. That's a lot of fun. Um, 
from a performance standpoint, the person who comes off the best is Michael Pena as the comic relief, as one would expect, and he is delightful. I love him. There are a couple I, of... I am so happy that he's he's like a guy that started off not in yeah. comedies, and I'm so happy that he's like sort of like Paul Rudd, like found himself in comedies because yeah. he's so funny... But he still um, does stuff like End of Watch, you know, but But in this he's uh, delightful. He's, even though the movie is not great, he's brilliant in 30 minutes or less. Remember that movie? Oh yeah, that's right. Um, And he's also uh, on Eastbound and Down season two, which is fantastic, where he (laughs) threatens Kenny with a sword. Okay. Uh, It's Kenny, right? Yeah, Kenny Powers, right? Kenny Powers, yeah. And um, in his own, is in his house, Michael Peña's house, threatens with a sword. And uh, Kenny, in retaliation, picks up his laptop to wield it as a weapon. And Michael Pena says, my spreadsheets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he man. <laughs> yeah, he does. have. He has a really good comic sensibility. And and that and it comes through here. Like there's there's a weird like almost uh, sometimes like a childlike quality to him. And, in the, and definitely in this film and just an enthusiasm that that is very infectious. Um, there are a couple of sequences that seem like, okay, uh, Edgar Wright came up with this sequence oh, okay. and Peyton Reed paid it off pretty well. Uh, like instances when, um, when Michael Pena is telling a story about this job, about how he heard about this, this great job that they can go and do. And, uh, and so he's narrating it as he's like, I heard it from this person, from this person, from this person. And then it turns into sort of a drunk history thing where these people are now, speaking with Michael Pena's voice and in his cadence, you know, and it's, it's very funny. Um, and the, so that's all well and good, except I, I can't even put my finger on it. Like the film. So Marvel movies, it's, it's usually assumed they're going to be funny and, and light and Mm -hmm. that's fine. But this one seems so, seems to struggle to, to be that naturally. And so it winds up kind of, removing all the stakes and i'm sorry to say they have no idea what to do with that lead character paul rudd good actor though he may be is lost completely he does not know how to play the character not because of his fault the script gives the script gives him a collection of one-liners they make him funny in inconsistent ways like this is a character who has like a mechanical engineering degree like Mm -hmm. he's a smart person who has fallen on hard times Okay, you can make him a smart ass and you can make him very caustic. He's been to prison for Pete's sake, you know, like you can do that. That's fine. That's where the humor comes from. But they may they get humor out of him, like not picking up on certain social cues. And it's like that doesn't fit with the character you've created. And it doesn't fit with who Paul Rudd is as a as an on screen on screen presence. When I think of even the worst Marvel films, I know who Thor is. I know who it's like the second film. I mean, like he still shines through like they always get the lead characters right. As far as we know who they are. I do not know who this character is. I don't care who this character is. It is, I think probably if not the worst Marvel movie, it is in the bottom two or three. Um, and it, and it bums me out. Like, and it just, and also just the way that jokes are executed, they're set up and paid off 
within 10 seconds is like, you might need a little bit more setup. Like there's a part where, where Michael Pena and, and these, and his buddies, they're, they're going to go help Paul Rudd, but, uh, they don't know that Paul Rudd is in a situation where he is surrounded by cops. And so they're driving up in their van but basically it cuts to them driving up and Michael Pena saying, it's like, it's like, you know what? We're going to help him no matter what. Then they see the cops mm-hmm. and then, he, and then the humor comes with Michael Pena basically like being very calm and be like, all right, back it up. Just, just back it up. <laughs> and he says it like six times. Just, mm-hmm. yep, just back it up. Yep. Going to be all right. And so that's funny, but it, but like the, the real joke is if we cut to them once or twice in which they say like, we got to get there. We need to like, they're committing to how much they want to help him and then turn on a dime. But we have literally like five seconds of them saying they want to do this. And then an immediate turnaround. Like, you know what I mean? Like from a timing standpoint, it's not quite right. And so the film just, it just felt, it was just very forgettable and there are fun parts of it, of course, but by and large, like it is just, it it felt like a missed opportunity. And I do genuinely believe that had Edgar Wright made it, he would have known how to time a joke. How is our favorite castaway Evangeline Lilly? I'm sorry, who? (laughs) Okay. Um, next, uh, that's too bad because I always want her to be good because I, uh, love lost so much. Um, next up for me and final uh, movie for me, is uh now uh i'm forgetting her last name why do i do this mariel it's like it's like mary lou henner but it's not okay it's called the diary of a teenage girl and that dumb title is the only bad thing about it okay it's an amazing movie um it takes place in 1976 in san francisco and it's about a 15 year old girl whose mother is played by Kristen wig okay um and is not the best mom uh and this girl, Minnie, starts, she loses her virginity to her mom's boyfriend, played by Al, uh, Alexander Skarsgård. Am I saying that? Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, and they start having, essentially, an affair, and it, it's uh, it's a it's a sexual awakening coming-of-age movie. And what I love about it is that her her sexual awakening is, I would say, pretty patently unhealthy okay. the fact that it's this guy who's tw- she's 15 and this guy's 35 yeah that's and then not she starts great. engaging in a lot of uh very risky sexual behavior and but the movie what i like is that it trusts us to know this is unhealthy mm-hmm. but the movie is from her point of view you know it's her sure. mindset so we as much as much as she keeps making bad decisions we understand why she's making them and we understand why she feels good about them at the time mm-hmm. Uh, and that has to do with it being a great screenplay and direction, but also just a fantastic lead performance uh, from a young woman whose name I don't want to mess up. It's like Bell Powley or something. Okay. Um, I, but I want to get it right. I just probably did mess it up. Uh, this is what, uh, guys, this is what it's like doing a podcast. You have to fill dead air. So sometimes you end up saying stupid stuff. Uh, Bell Powley is her name. And yeah, I'm right. The director's name is Marielle Heller. Okay. Not Mary Lou Henner. Right. Marielle Heller. Pretty close. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, it, I, I don't, I don't really know what else to, what more to say about it. Just that it's, I, I, I guess it, uh, this just has to do with me having seen them on back to back to back nights, but I wanted train wreck to be in a new spin on the romantic comedy, mm-hmm. right? It's not, I mean, I guess there are some things, but it's not really the diary of a teenage girl is a fresh take on the coming of age 
movie. Okay. Well, that's uh, nice. And it's, it's fantastic. It does have a really lame title that I keep having to look up because it's so boring. <laughs> I keep forgetting what it is. It's the Evangeline Lily of titles. <laughs> yeah. I literally came home and told my wife, like, you have to see this great movie. It's called diary of an American teenager or something. <laughs> um, literally it was like an hour after I saw the movie. Um, that, so that's, that's a bit of a problem, but it's, uh, yeah, it's really great. Um, Chris Maloney also has a small part in it, which is always welcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's fantastic. It is, you know, uh, be prepared for, uh, you know, it, it's a very, it, it can be very upsetting and it has, uh, a lot of very, uh, explicit sexual con- content nice. in a way that I, yeah, like it's not titillating, but it's also not like, it's not like when Reese Witherspoon in wild was like engaging in risky behavior where it's like, you're supposed to be thinking yeah. like, like, like they intentionally pair, uh, tiny we saw this with like a gigantic man yeah. you know uh to make it seem this is uncomfortable like we're seeing it from her point of view so it's like it walks this line of not being exploitative of her mm-hmm. but also not uh you know condemning or being condemning or shaming about her it's like it's really is identifying with this with this girl well i kind of love that because when you think about it like okay you me the listeners probably we are all probably in the midst of of living out decisions and carrying out plans that are really ill-advised and we don't know it we'll know it in a while but we don't know it now i'm I'm literally drinking a beer right now (laughs) yes i guess there is that yeah and after we record you're gonna go smoke a cigarette that's probably you know um and so uh, I drink Propel Zero Grape, which is just uh, just the worst thing for you. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, but that's the thing. Like in those moments, we don't realize that this is a bad idea. We might have a s- uh, slight idea uh, of it, like an inkling of it, but the benefit in that moment far outweighs like any potential negative that right. we that might occur to us. And so, like a movie that really. I mean, obviously, like we know consciously that this is a bad thing, but the character doesn't yet. We know she will eventually, but right now it's an exciting thing. And to put it in there without being exploitative sounds very intriguing to me. I like the idea of it. Good. For, I'm, I'm excited now. And certainly I would not have gotten excited by that title. Yes. It's, it's That's cool. unfortunate. Uh, all right. Uh, you got one more movie, I think. I do. Uh, I saw Bill Condon's Mr. Holmes starring Ian McKellen. Uh, the two of them together again after uh, 17 years. Gods and Monsters is a movie that I liked quite a bit. Me too. Um, and what? But I can't think of it without hearing our oh, with, Josh yeah. Fadum do his impressions. <laughs> the little pricks. <laughs> um, yeah, which, by the way, it's just that's all over Mr. Holmes as well. Just talking about pricks. Yeah, uh, Dr. Watson's little prick. and um, Yeah, so, uh, you know, it's... And, th- and this is in many ways similar to, like, Gods and Monsters because you have a character... Now, you know, James Whale was a real person. Sherlock Holmes was not, but... This is based on a book in which it's like, okay, well, there is a real direct, uh, uh, detective named Sherlock Holmes. There were stories written about him that inflated his image. So this is the real guy. This is the real guy. But it's like, but obviously there isn't a real guy. And so, um, but he's older. He's like in his early nineties. Um, he's living in like a little country cottage 
he needs help. So he has a, a housekeeper played by Laura Linney who lives with her, who has her small son with her. Uh, and she's a widow. And so, uh, so it's, it's basically him sort of connecting with these, with these two. He's just gotten back from Japan where he was seeking out, um, uh, a remedy to memory loss and that sort of thing. Because of course this is a character with a very, very sharp mind and now it's starting to go a little bit. So there's a real tragedy there. And I think that's the brilliance. Cause like this story doesn't necessarily need to be about Sherlock Holmes. Like it would still be interesting, but we know who Sherlock Holmes is. We know that he's one of the smartest, most insight, you know, uh, insightful characters in the, in the history of literature and television and film and that sort of thing. And it's, it's very, I think smart for them to make this movie right now when there've been new Sherlock Holmes movies, there's the show Sherlock, there's elementary, you know, like he's very much in the public consciousness as incredibly smart. And now he's starting to lose it. And it's a very sad thing. Uh, but as he's doing so, he is also growing closer, certainly to this little boy, but also to, uh, the, uh, his housekeeper as well. And so it's, and he's also delving into like who he used to be and case and a case that he could never really solve. And, and, and it winds up also being just kind of a reflection uh, of, or just an exploration of regret at the end of your life and feeling like, Oh, everything that I prioritized might have been incorrect, but it's not too late. And in a way it, it almost feels a little about Schmidtish to me. Hmm. Um, and, uh, so it's Ian McKellen in a, I mean, I, I feel like I haven't seen him in a role this good cause he's been doing Magneto and, and Gandalf for so long. I feel like I haven't seen him in a role this small and subtle since gods and monsters. And even that character was a little bit over the top. Um, and it's just a really not, and he plays the age of the character really well and plays, you know, that he's, he's benevolent, but he also doesn't, he's almost a little Aspergery. Like he doesn't necessarily understand how to deal with people because he's so good at these other things and he prioritizes reason above emotion and that kind of thing. So, um, music by Carter Burwell, beautiful, of course. Cool. Uh, it's also just gorgeous to look at. And it's just a really, it's just, I thought it was a really nice, uh, effective film. And, uh, and I believe it comes out this week and probably limited release if I had to guess, but if you have the opportunity to see it, uh, seek it out, really great acting and, and good. just good writing and all that. All right, um, on to TV. All right. Uh, I want to tell you about a show. I only watched the first episode so far. Okay. It's a uh, competition reality show. Okay. It's where, it's, you know those shows now that it's like, if this were 15 years ago, we would have just called them a game show. But sure. now it has like reality with like confessionals yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. It's on the History Channel. Okay. It's called Forged in, Forged in Fire. Mm, I like that. And so it's... Uh, it's not like Top Chef oh, compared to food shows. It's not like Top Chef where there's, uh, you know, one cast that gets whittled down mm-hmm. over the course of the season. It's like Chopped where there's four contestants each episode okay. and you have a winner in each episode and they're different contestants. But instead of making food, these people make swords. Okay. So that's awesome. Right. Yeah. So it starts off. They're told. It doesn't seem like it should be an entire show. If it's possible it's, to have a re- reality miniseries, it seems like that's what it should be. No, it's, this is going to be an ongoing. Show All right. Cause there's apparently this many sword makers, uh, amateur or professional or semi-professional. Anyway, 
it's so much fun that I haven't watched it because a part of me wants it to be a runaway success and get mm-hmm. to the point where it's like Pawn Stars, where there's like it's just <laughs> on all the time. Because I love the idea of it being a hot day or being in a hotel room or something and just watching three or four of these <laughs> in a row because it's that kind yeah, of awesome. It's show. like House Hunters or something. <laughs> yeah, like that. yeah, yeah, very much like that. Except it's it's a except in reality show but yeah. making swords yeah instead of uh hunting for houses uh people are making swords yeah. in, in fire yeah so you see so do you know uh, this is like this seems counterintuitive but you will know exactly what i'm talking about okay. it's that mix of it's like the macho nerd thing do you know what i'm talking about okay it's like super nerdy yeah but also a lot of testosterone yeah yeah absolutely yeah. um so, uh, and as a, you know, a fan of heavy metal music, that's, uh, that's yeah. kind of my wheelhouse a little bit. Um, so, uh, it starts off with four guys and they're given, uh, one task. Okay. You have three hours to make a, uh, a sword or a blade and it has to be this, this one, the blade has to be nine to 11 inches long and it has to have at least four inches of serration. That was all they were told. Okay. And so these guys had three hours to form a blade and then just, uh, they didn't have to make a handle just like the tang, I guess, which is the part of the metal okay. that goes into where the handle will be. Uh, so they said to make the blade uh, and the tang. Um, and at the end of the three hours, they're judged and one of them is eliminated. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, now you've got another three hours. And that man is run through with a sword. <laughs> yeah. His now, own sword. Now you've got another three hours in which you uh, have to refine this blade and add a handle and, uh, you know, uh, a hilt or I don't know what it's called. Okay. Um, I don't know my sword terminology. I know some stuff about swords. Sounds, like, sounds like you're not paying attention to this show. Yeah. I know what a pommel is. Okay. I know what a quillen is. Oh, my. I know some things. That's not, it's more than I know. Okay. Um, but I don't know the difference between a handle and a hilt or if they're just, just the same thing. Okay. Uh, anyway. Um, so at the end of that three hours, again, it's not three hours in the show. The right. whole show is an hour long. Sure. At the end of that three hours, this is where the show gets re- starts starts to get really good. Okay. Because <laughs> now they've got three completed- listeners once again. I wish this was a video <laughs> show just to see how animated uh, uh, David is getting. Now they got they've got these three completed knives, and they're going to put them through a couple of tests. Oh, watch out! The first one is they're going to the judges are going to try to stab a steel drum. And the steel drum is full of blue liquid so that you can tell, like checking your dipstick, you can tell right, how far yeah, yeah. in it went. So they stab each one of these into <laughs> a steel drum, right? See how far it pierces. Then they've got a length of heavy rope that's connected to the floor and the ceiling. They try to cut that in half. you got three chances to cut it in half. Yeah. Whoever does the worst on those tests is eliminated. Yeah. Now here's where it gets interesting. Okay. okay? All right. Because unlike Chopped, where there's just like a third round, here, there's a whole, like, they say, okay, you've made your blade for the first two rounds, but the signature, there's a signature blade, I guess, or type of sword for every episode. Episode one, this is the Japanese katana. Now, each of you has five days to go home to your home forge and make the best Japanese katana that you can make, Mm -hmm. right? So they they go home, they fly home, they go home, they, this guy, the one guy, he, uh, the part where you get the blade really hot and then you dunk it in water and yeah. it hardens it. It's called quenching. Yeah. I didn't know that. It's one of my learned. favorite things uh, to ever witness. Yeah. Well, this guy got his blade too hot. So when he quenched it, it just, you could, it was audible. You could hear it go and just crack all the way. So then that was oh, on wow. his third day. So suddenly he had two and a half days to make a blade. Uh, anyway, so at the end of the five days, they come back, right? They got the Japanese katanas. Okay. Another set of tests. Yeah. These are the best. This is the best part, right? The first test, okay, is they've got three 
big fish, dead fish hanging from the ceiling. Okay. And so one guy grabs a sword and yeah, 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 cuts three fish in half. Okay. This is a reality show on History Network where they're testing swords by cutting fish in half. Yeah. Uh, and the guy's like, it will slice. That was his like seal of approval. It yeah. will slice. And the second thing, this gets cool, is the uh, will it kill test. Oh, right? watch out. So they've got a torso made of this like gel stuff that has. Oh, yeah. I saw Deadliest Warrior. I know how it works. Okay. So it has like these, it has organs in it and yeah. those are filled with a blue liquid. Yeah. So they can tell uh, how well. So then they put it on, they put on like Japanese feudal armor on the thing because that's the kind of armor you'd be facing with this thing. So they do like one slice, one stab, and then one like side stab. Okay. Right? And they take the armor off and they see, will it kill? Right? Yeah. Okay. Then you get to the third test. You're not going to guess. I could give you half an hour right now. You would not guess what the third test is. Uh, cut through a can? No. They take the blades outside. They put them in a vise. Right? Okay. Stick them straight up. All right. Then they have a perfectly calibrated gun pointed at, not the flat of the blade, pointed at the edge of the blade. And they fire it, and the idea is, will the blade cut a bullet? Will it split a bullet? So they shoot a gun at these swords. They literally bring a, a, a gun. I'm sure to there's sword slow, fight. slow motion photography. Oh right? yeah, and like, it's awesome because they've got like paper behind it, so you can see if it yeah. causes how many holes it causes as it as it goes through. So they shoot guns at the blade, and at the end, somebody wins. Uh, but it's so much fun. I could just watch them shoot guns and cut fish and stab barrels all day with these things. I got to say, the first two tests are, are very practical. Like, well, you're going to, you know, it can slice through things, which you're going to need as a, as, a, as a samurai warrior. Right. Uh, and it's like, well, and you're going to go up against other samurai warriors. You're going to need to cut through that armor. Yeah. But, you know, uh, after you complete your, your Jedi training and somebody pulls out a gun, are you going to be able to c- cut that bullet in half? And by the way, just hold the... <laughs> the sword right in front of you face the, with the blade facing them and boy and that person you better hope they're pretty accommodating or they don't they they don't realize oh i should go f- at them from the side with my gun here <laughs> right. uh yeah no hey, i'm 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 totally on board i love demonstrations like that it's why i liked the piece of shit show deadliest warrior yeah which i think was actually kind of immoral uh oh, in yeah, the way you've talked about it before yeah it's it's astounding and so well you went into a lot of detail about that. And I watched it weeks ago. I, rem- I remember it <laughs> like I watched it this morning. Forged in fire. So good. Boy, oh boy. That's a lot of fun. Okay. Um, uh, what's your, you have one TV show to talk about. Yeah. No spoilers. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll speak in generalities. Yeah. I finally, I finally caught up on uh, Hannibal. I was for, for so long I was, I had seen the first episode and, and then I just didn't really have time to watch the other ones because there are some shows that I'll watch while I'm working and Hannibal is not one of those. Um, and then finally, uh, after the, I think the, the Hannibal Panable at, uh, Comic-Con, I think that kind of got me excited to be like, all right, I, you know, when it comes time for, you know, Francis Dollar had to show up and, and all that, like, I want to, I want to be a, under, I want to understand what people are talking about while that's happening. So I need to catch up. So I, so I watched, uh, f- I believe five episodes, um, since Comic-Con. Okay. And, um, I've only seen the first four myself. Okay. All right. So yeah. So a lot of the comments that I have to say, you'll actually, uh, understand, which is like those first three episodes are just so ethereal mm-hmm. and so like, especially, Oh sure. That like, second one's pretty, pretty up there too. 
Well, I guess I don't want to get into spoilers. Yeah, because the first one's primarily about Hannibal. But the first one is like, I just love the idea that to a normal network show, like a season premiere is like, well, let's see if we can get some new viewers or catch them up. Like, yeah, the season three premiere is maybe the weirdest episode they've ever done. Oh, sure. It jumps through time. It uses color and black and white. It changes aspect ratio. Yeah, it's all over. The Let place. me suggest this. I'm a fan of the show and they almost alienated <laughs> me. Um, and so, yeah, I really appreciate what they're doing. Like, it's just, it, it is amazing. Um, I mean, this is as a fan of Manhunter, and then as somebody who also appreciates and enjoys Silence of the Lambs. Like, I mean, this is the best. Like, Thomas Harris, and you read Red Dragon, just Red Dragon, I and read you thought, else and you thought it was great. Yeah, it's great. Um, but I predict that, like, at no point when he was creating these characters and creating this world did he ever think it could be as rich uh-huh. as brian fuller is realizing it would you say that's uh fair i, I can't get inside thomas, thomas okay. head but uh yeah hope so. um but yeah it's just it's so much it's just so it just pulls you into a world that you don't really want to be a part of um but you're just so intrigued all the time and just it's alluring yeah very much so and um you know, and there is uh oh, you know what? I I think I might be spoiling something if I say that, so I will not. Okay. But there is a fight um, that happens between char- two characters, and it is... Wait, is that the end of the fourth episode? I thought it was the end of the fifth, um, okay. but... Well, maybe there's another fight. Okay, there's yeah, a yeah. a big fight at the end of the fourth episode. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, and, I, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but, um, but yeah, it's... Uh, so when this, when the plot starts kicking in and the characters start kicking in, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, I like, you know, Michael Pitt left, uh, so he's not playing Mason Verger anymore, but they brought him, I think his name's Joe Anderson. Yeah. Um, he's fun. Yeah, he's fun. And he certainly is, is really approximating like Gary Oldman in the, the Hannibal right. movie. But, uh, yeah, I've, I've really been enjoying it. I can't wait to see, you know, there's an episode tonight. I can't wait to see it. Like it is very much, it's, it's pretty rare for me to, um, be so, except for survivor, of course, to be so into a show that I literally just cannot wait to see what happens next. And this is absolutely that. Well, the one, uh, Moving on to my final show, the one that I can't wait to watch, even though I'm now two episodes behind because okay. of Comic-Con and catching up and everything, is the new USA series, Mr. Robot. Okay. You notice I didn't say Mr. Robot. Yeah. Because I'm showing this show the proper respect oh. because it's so damn good. Yeah, I I, uh, I really think you would like it. Um, I'm talking to you, Tyler, and the listeners. I think everyone would like it. Um, it's nothing like any USA show before because USA... So it's not like Silk Stockings? Well, I guess I was thinking more of like the blue sky procedurals. It's not like suits or white collar or royal pains or covert affairs or necessary roughness. I think I'm going deep here. Oh, I thought you were just making them up on the USA. No. Um, uh, but it's also not like trying not to be that the way Mm. that like these new TV land series are like, have you seen like, let's see how dark and edgy we can get with our comedies now. We're not sure. Sure. We're not your, grandfather's TV lane or whatever. <laughs> um, uh, but it's just a really great, uh, show that is, it has, it has an awesome hook of, it's about this, uh, guy who's, I guess he's a hacker, but I feel like, uh, an old man using that term, <laughs> but it, it, he, he works for an independent, uh, online security firm that is, um, a vendor to a lot of big corporations. Mm-hmm. And he, 
uh, it's more complicated than this, but he essentially gets recruited by a sort of um, militant activist hacker consortium mm. led by Christian Slater as the character Mr. Robot, although he doesn't. He has a jacket from like a computer repair store called Mr. Robot, and so okay. that's what, in the narration, that's what the main character refers to him as because we don't know his name. But he's not, he doesn't like introduce himself as Mr. Robot. No one calls him Mr. Robot. That's just. That's just what he is okay. uh, in the narration. Um, so that's the main hook, this like hacking type of thing. Uh, but it really is just about this guy, this main character who is uh, incredibly damaged, I guess. Uh, I don't know if that's a glib way to put it, but he's um, not uh, mentally well. Um, and he's also a drug addict. And he's, but he's also brilliant mm-hmm. uh, and incredibly um, uh, talented, I guess, at hacking. <laughs> so it's, cool there's such an eye roll when you say it. Yeah, because yeah, I feel like I'm like I just learned about yeah. like computers through the telephone line. Yeah. Um, I don't. I saw I, this movie called The Net with the girl <laughs> from the bus. <laughs> <laughs> You remember? Yeah, I forgot about that until yeah. now. Yeah, that's exactly how, what I feel like. Um, uh, I, I don't want. I feel like I don't want to say too much about it, but it has a great little sense of humor to it. Uh, you know, not that it's a overly funny show, but like mm-hmm. any good drama, it has uh, some sense of humor about itself. Um, it has a real sense of darkness and danger and intrigue that isn't borrowing from any other like every other dark. Mm-hmm procedural do you know what i mean not procedural, yeah, yeah like yeah. network drama it feels i guess like the best tv or like the best movies it feels like it's a singular point of view right um and it also the other thing that's interesting about it is that okay so this is this might sound corny when i say it because whenever i think about it it sounds corny but it's so it's such a great touch in the show the the main um company corporation that um mm-hmm uses this uh, all safe is the name of the uh, security firm that he works for is called E Corp. And in the world of the film or in the world of the show, E Corp is uh, a bank that also is a technology company. It's, it's, right. it's involved in everything. And so he, the main character hates them and refers to them in his mind as evil corp. Okay. That's what he calls them. But we start to see because it's in his point of view, everyone says evil corp. Because we're hearing, and even when we see like a billboard or something, it says Evil Corp on it because we're in his mind, hmm. which uh, leads to questions like, does this weird hacker consortium with a guy named Mr. Robot actually even exist? Is the whole, is all this stuff happening in his mind? Uh, again, people who have seen the, the third and fourth episode know more than I do right now. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I'm I'm super super into it. Uh, I feel like there was, oh, and I think it will. I, I, I'm hoping this is the show that breaks the Christian Slater curse because he does not do. Uh, unfortunately, does not have a lot of luck with television, yeah. especially dramas. Because he was in Breaking In, which was a comedy, which actually got a second season, which is rare for him. Mm-hmm. But his in the last ten, like just over five years, I guess he did mind games, my own worst enemy and yeah. forgotten. Is that the other one? Yeah. Well, oddly enough, we can't remember. <laughs> yeah. Um, and none of those got a second season. Yeah. 
um, I am thinking maybe this show, A, because it's good, and B, maybe the fact that Christian Slater isn't the lead of it. Right, I was going to suggest <laughs> that, be, yeah. Yeah, uh, part of it. But and I'm, I'm a, over the moon a, about this show. That's a shame. Like, I've... I've from what I, you know, what I've seen of his, you know, later career, I've, I've liked it. I, I, yeah. you know, and it sounds like he's good on this show. And I remember seeing him